This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Sir Stephen Wall. Sir Stephen has held, among other posts in the British government, ambassador to Portugal, permanent British representative to the European Union, and head of the Cabinet Office's European Secretariat. He is the author of three books dealing with Britain's relations with the European Union, two of them being part of the official British history of the same. And today we are speaking about his newest book, Reluctant European, Britain and the European Union, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Sir Stephen Wall. Thank you very much for having me. Sir Stephen, what is the thesis of your book? Well, the basic thesis of my book uh, is that we, the United Kingdom, were a country which uh, joined the European community as it was. And we joined in 1973, uh, years after its foundation, which was in 1957. Um, And we joined not because we really wanted to. It was because we decided that there was no realistic uh, alternative uh, and that having joined, we were never really ever at ease with our membership. We always hoped that the club would be something other than it really was. And although I'm not one of those who believes that Brexit was inevitable, um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the pointers are there. And I tried to trace really what those pointers were in the book. Why do you commence the book in the Frick Library in New York, in the room where the Holbein portraits of St. Sir Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell are held? Well, uh, <laughs> that's, partly, that's partly a whim on my part. I mean, uh, uh, sadly, I haven't been able to go to New York for, every, for obvious reasons over the last year or so. But every time I do go, one of my first destinations is that room in the Frick. I just think they are, apart from the fact that they are two uh, of the most brilliant uh, uh, portraits, they do they do sum up two different views, really, of Europe, in a sense. Uh, one is the view of Thomas More, the European uh, scholar, friend of uh, of uh, Erasmus, um, and a great defender, of course, of the Catholic Church against the Reformation of Henry VIII, whose principal architect was the person in the portrait on the right of the fireplace, uh, Thomas Cromwell. And I think, you know, the Reformation is as much uh, about Englishness as it is probably more actually about Englishness and separateness in the political and cultural sense than it is about differences of religious dogma. Henry VIII, after all, the architect of it, considered himself to be a Catholic until his dying day. 
What were Sir Winston Churchill's underlying thinking in his post-war speeches discussing European unity, and how did he view Britain's role in the same? Well, Churchill, of course, was uh, a child of empire. You know, he'd served in the British army in uh, in India. He was very reluctant. He was against the trend of the times. He was very reluctant. He opposed Indian independence in, uh, in, in 1947. And he still had a view, really, of Britain at the heart of an empire, and if not an empire, then, then the Commonwealth. So he saw these sort of interlocking circles, if you were. One was Britain and the Commonwealth. One self-evidently was the United States, uh, and the other was, uh, was Europe. Um, and at, t- at the time he, he made his, his big sort of European, uh, speech uh, in the first year after the war, he was still hoping that Russia, like the United States and like Britain, would look benignly on a European project. And he was, I mean, he was, where he was radical was that he was one of the first, if not the, the first person to say that Europe has got to be led by a combination of the two old enemies, uh, France and Germany. And that was a very, very revolutionary thing uh, to say. I mean, for the French in particular, this was the third defeat they had suffered at, at, at German hands in less than a century. And of course, a, a horrific, a horrific defeat at the hands of a, of an almost uniquely, uh, nasty, nasty regime. So it was a very revolutionary thing uh, to do. But Churchill did not see Britain as a participant. He saw, he saw Britain as a benign supporter from the outside. How did Ernest Bevan, uh, British Foreign Secretary from 1945 to 1951 in the Labour government, view the nascent movement towards European unity? Well, again, I think, uh, I mean, interestingly, a a journalist called Michael Charlton uh, wrote a a book um, uh, in the 1980s in which he in which he spoke to a lot of the people who had been involved at the time in those decisions, including uh, official civil servants at the, at the time. And they all said that it simply, even if they themselves had thought in European terms, it simply was not on the, on the radar, as it were, of, uh, uh, of that, uh, of that government. I mean, Bevin's, uh, concern, well, Bevin had two concerns, really. One, one was domestic to stop the rise of communism within the British trade union, uh, movement in, in, uh, in Britain. Um, uh, and the other was really security in a broader sense. I mean, he was one of the, one of the instigators and founders of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization of NATO. And in that regard, I think, you know, has a very, has a very notable, notable, uh, record. But, Britain also had, as I think, a rather exaggerated view of the importance of its own relationship with the United States. It's not the first time or the last time that this has, uh, in our modern history, that this has that this has happened. And I think, you know, one of the clever things on the part of the United States was to see uh, very early on that with the the rise of of the threat really to global peace from the Soviet Union, which had taken over most of Europe and and was and was threatened. I mean, a, a menacing a menacing state. That the frontier of the United States in terms of peace had to be the frontier of West Germany, because any attack from the Soviet Union was likely to start with conventional armed forces, and there simply weren't the Western conventional armed forces to overwhelm the Soviets, and therefore any um, battle would quickly escalate uh, to nuclear weapons. So the United States saw very clearly that that supporting West Germany and the democracy in West Germany, and then subsequently the unity of, of Europe in the coal and steel community, which reconciled 
France and Germany, and then in the European community, was very sound politics. And uh, the British really didn't see that. And I think both exaggerated their own significance to the United States and were slightly kind of cross when, uh, when in particular, in the Marshall Plan, um, you know, they didn't do quite as well as, uh, as uh, some of the continental countries. Would that explain the negative British response to the Schumann Plan of May 1950? Yes, I think it. I, th- I think it does, and I think. I mean, I think it. It was partly. Um, I mean, there was a degree of sort of bad temper. I think on Ernest Bevin's part, but they just didn't take it. They didn't really take it seriously, um, uh, and I. Th- you can. You can sort of understand it. Um, after all, these were countries which, in the case of Germany and Italy, had been disgraced really by the regimes uh, which had run them, and in other cases um, defeated and humiliated. Britain had emerged from from the war with its democratic institutions sort of intact and, if you like, sort of vindicated and and uh, and validated. And also, in purely in trade terms, the vast bulk of Britain's trade was with the Empire, and then the Commonwealth. And that really went on until the mid-1950s. I mean, as late as 1955, Australia, which had only 10 million people, uh, was Britain's largest export market. And it was only when that reality began to change, which was really just about the time the European community was being formed, that the British Treasury started to say, hang on a minute, actually, this, you know, this is so important that if it succeeds, we might have to join it. The Foreign Office view was, well, don't worry, boys, it won't succeed, so we needn't think about it. Uh, and, of course, that was, that was a historic mistake. Did Churchill become less enthusiastic about Britain's involvement in any future European federation with his return to office in October 1951? Yes, I think so. I mean, he and, and you can never. Of course, it's always difficult with Churchill to to because you know he was he was such a great um, man. He had such such powerful rhetoric, uh, and I think some of what he said, particularly at the time of the foundation of the Council of Europe, in which Britain did participate, and he was then in opposition, gave the impression that he was more forward thinking. Uh, than in reality he was. But I think the, the records that I looked at of ministerial discussions in that Churchill government, uh, show him really as, as, you know, it was, it was Britain, it was Britain, uh, apart. I mean, this was something that, again, that Britain would observe and not, and not participate in. And he was very attached to this notion, you know, that we as an island race, we had survived because we were an island and the con- countries of continental Europe hadn't. And when it came to the idea of a European army, which founded more on French objections than British, but nonetheless, you know, Churchill's view was was clear that we 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 wouldn't participate. What was the initial British response to the common market? Well, again, uh, I think a feeling that uh, that um, it wasn't it wasn't sufficiently significant uh, to be concerned about, apart from the um, caution that I mentioned from the. Uh, from the British, uh, from the British Treasury. And of course, we had emerged, um, uh, from the Suez crisis of 1956, where, where we and, the, where we and the French took action to, to try and wrest control of the Suez Canal from President Nasser of, uh, of, uh, Egypt. And the US administration under President Eisenhower, for very understandable reasons, had pulled the plug on that expedition. And, I think the, the the French government thought to themselves, well, you know, never again, as it were, and we'll, we'll you know, and this it sort of led towards the subsequent Gaullism when the 
president when de Gaulle came back into power. I think the British thought we must never again kind of detach ourselves uh, from the uh, uh, from the United States. And it wasn't really until after in the in the aftermath of, of Suez and the prime minister, Anthony Eden, who, of course, was one of the wartime leaders in Britain alongside Churchill. Eden was forced out of office and Harold Macmillan, uh, who had been chancellor of the Exchequer and foreign secretary, took over. And Macmillan had always had a more European view. Not, I wouldn't say that he was always an enthusiast for the European uh, community. I mean, there's a bit in one of his diaries quite early on um, where he writes in his diary at a meeting of the Council of Europe that it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's their federal view versus our more kind of consensus, uh, intergovernmental kind of view of how Europe should uh, develop. But Macmillan quite early on could see that Britain's role in the world was dramatically different, that we were no longer uh, a superpower. Uh, the super, two superpowers were the United States and the Soviet Union, with China as an up-and-coming uh, power, and that the only way to exercise political influence was with a group of countries of like-minded power, both politically and economically. And by that stage, and we're talking from 1960, uh, it was becoming clear that the European community was just that. And the motivation of Macmillan and his colleagues was as much political as economic. I mean, they were very worried about the Commonwealth. I mean, they, they agitated a lot because the Commonwealth countries, which was mostly then white Commonwealth, of course, it was mostly Canada, Australia, uh, 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 New Zealand, India, obviously. Uh, the countries of Africa were in, only were beginning to become uh, uh, independent. They were not at all keen on it, and Britain was very preoccupied uh, by that. And so... When they did apply uh, to join, it was rather it was rather half-hearted. Why did EFTA prove a poor alternative to the common market? I think the I think it was I mean it was an idea which was which was, which was certainly regarded within the European Community and certainly regarded by General de Gaulle by that stage back in power in France as as an attempt to undermine. Uh, the European community. I think it was more that uh, Macmillan uh, thought it would be uh, something which would give some some leverage uh, towards a favourable relationship between the European community on the one hand and, and the Britain and the other EFTA countries uh, on the other. But it was too small economically. It was outclassed economically by the European community, and you know other other members of the of, of the smaller club had in mind uh, membership of the European community, which of course Britain itself very soon did as well. So it was never really in the uh, in the running. And the European the European community showed um, from quite an early stage a degree of a degree of um, uh, ruthlessness, uh, which is still a characteristic uh, of the European Union in some respects today. Why did Harold Macmillan decide in 1960 to take the UK into the common market? Well, I think uh, for the reasons I've suggested, really, that uh, uh, EFTA was not uh, obviously going to be viable in any kind of uh, large sense of the world of the of the word. Britain was no longer uh, a superpower, uh, and you know um, uh, the two superpowers were the United States and the Soviet uh, Union. Um, and therefore, in order to exercise influence economically and politically, uh, Britain had to look elsewhere. And the obvious place to look was to its democratic neighbours on the continent. 
Why did General de Gaulle decide to veto Britain's application to join the common market in 1960 and 1963 and 1967? That's, well, that's a question which a lot of people have, have labored over. I mean, I think, I think part of it uh, was, uh, was personal. Uh, de Gaulle, as you I'm sure know better than me, had a very jaundiced view of, of the Anglo-Saxons. Um, uh, in personal terms, he got de Gaulle liked Churchill in a way that he never liked uh, uh, Roosevelt. Um, uh, President Kennedy, on his state visit to Paris, asked de Gaulle about his relations with Roosevelt and, 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 and Churchill, and. Uh, uh, the girl said, I, I never had a crossword with Roosevelt, but we really didn't get on. And I had lots of crosswords with Churchill, but we did uh, get on. Um, and uh, so part, part of it was part of it was was that. And I think, you know, a feeling a misplaced feeling, in my view, that the girl had been badly treated by the allies uh, during the war. But I think much more importantly was that was, you know, a, a view of French uh, national self-interest. I mean, de Gaulle was no fan of the of the kind of inter-institutional structures of the European community. He didn't like this idea of a supranational European commission putting forward the proposals for laws or a European as assembly. But he could see that this was the route by a for Anglo, sorry, for Franco-German uh, reconciliation and, and the, the treaty which he and Adenauer made on the eve of de Gaulle's first veto. Uh, in 1963, was a very, very important step in in, uh, in European peace, and then you know of advancing France's interest, in particular the the basic sort of theme of the European Community economically, which was a form of protectionism, a, cust a protectionist customs union, uh, suited France uh, very well, and in particular the French were able to ensure at a time when agriculture was the sort of cornerstone of their economy, and basically the the people involved in agriculture, the cornerstone of de Gaulle's political support, that agriculture, agricultural support accounted for 90 percent of the European community budget. So there was a degree of, of self-interest. Also, I think de Gaulle was pretty far-sighted in recognizing that if Britain joined, the nature of the European community would change because, as he correctly said, um, you know, Britain was a country which looked to the rest of the world for its trade. We were a free trading nation. We weren't naturally, we weren't naturally protectionist. And if Britain joined, uh, I mean, de Gaulle foresaw that up, there'd be up to a total of up to 18 members. Well, as we know, we're now, there are now, uh, 27. But at the time, the idea that the European community might expand so much was was he was the only person really to say it, but he was quite far-sighted in that. I think the final part, part of it really was a, a rather um, uh, perhaps slightly vainglorious view on de Gaulle's part that somehow an independent France could hold the balance uh, between the West, I mean the West as led by the United States on the one hand and Soviet Russia on the other, and that was uh, a, a delusion I think. Why did uh, Harold Wilson, after he came to power in October 1964, change labor policy on the question of joining the European Union or the common market, I should say? Yes, well, I think I think that I think that Harold Wilson went through the same thought processes that uh, Macmillan had been through. I mean, Wilson is quite an interesting uh, case study. I mean, the Labour Party in opposition when Macmillan was prime minister um, 
were divided over over Europe. And Wilson's predecessor as leader of the Labour Party, Hugh Gateskill, made a famous speech at the party conference saying that joining the common market would be the end of a thousand years of of uh, uh, of history, which is why the first chapter of my book is called a thousand, a thousand years of history, because I wanted to demonstrate that actually you know, we've been intertwined with our continental neighbours um, uh, forever. But Wilson, Wilson had a rather advanced view about sovereignty. Wilson's view was that, so, that sharing sovereignty was a good thing and not a bad thing. And in that he was unusual for his time and certainly for his party. But he was rapidly persuaded. I mean, he when he came into office in 1964, he was a believer also in strengthening the European free trade area. And that was that was never going to be possible. And so by the beginning of 1965, he'd come round to the view that actually joining the European community was the only way forward. And after he'd won, he went to the country again in 1966 because he only won by very, very narrow majority in 64. He secured a very big overall majority in 1966 and then applied uh, to join. And he and George Brown, the foreign secretary, toured the capitals of the European community and got support for their application uh, from everybody except uh, de Gaulle. And de Gaulle didn't at that point absolutely say no, but he was, you know, he was polite, but very uh, lukewarm about it. And then in 1967, he made it plain that uh, he would veto. And at that stage, the British economy was in very, very dire straits. Britain had had to devalue the pound. And I think that although the five other member states of the European uh, community supported the British application to join, in a way, it was almost a bit of a relief to them <laughs> that uh, uh, we weren't uh, about to, to join because of the parlous state of our economy and the fear that if Britain did join, they might end up having to bail us out. Why did uh, French President uh, successor to de Gaulle, Georges Pompidou, uh, change his attitude towards Britain's application to enter the common market? Well, I think I, I think partly because you know uh, de, Gaulle, de Gaulle's view was uniquely de Gaulle, um, uh, and uh, Pompidou didn't didn't share it. I think he came under quite a lot of pressure from Willy Brandt, the Chancellor of of, uh, uh, of Germany, and then Edward Heath, who by then was the British Prime Minister, was a long-standing uh, pro-European. I mean, convinced from his time serving in the British Army uh, uh, during World War Two of the need for European unity, and so he was willing to accept. Uh, the kind of Europe that Pompidou also uh, uh, envisaged. Although, interestingly, at the time, um, although um, you know, Brit Britain perhaps more than the others, but Willy Brandt, the German Chancellor, and President Pompidou, like, like Heath, they really thought that the European community should be run by the three biggest member states. I mean, they didn't give much uh, time and attention, really, to the role of the European uh, Commission, although the European Commission, by virtue of the treaties, uh, was, was, was gaining uh, more power and authority with each successive bit of community legislation. Were the terms of Britain's entry into the common market as bad as they are frequently said to have been? Yes, I think, is in, a, in a word. And, I mean, the government did have to consider whether they were you know, bad enough not to go ahead. But the view, the view was that the European community was too important to us um, to be outside it and that sooner or later we'd have to apply again uh, and we might get even worse terms. So the thought was basically join, swallow hard and then uh, 
uh, get it improved from from within. The biggest, the biggest, well, there were two problems really. The biggest problem was the financing of the European Community because of Pompidou not being stupid. One of the con- the main conditions he made for opening negotiations with the British was to settle uh, the method by which the European Community would finance itself before Britain joined, and the method that they devised. Uh, was going to always put a very big financial burden on Britain, which at the time, in per capita terms, um, along with you know Italy and and, and Ireland when Ireland joined, uh, was one of the one of the poorer member states. So when Britain joined, um, the only two countries of what was then a European Community of nine after we joined, the only two countries that were not getting back from the European budget more than they put in were Germany and Britain. Whereas Germany, of course, was massively wealthy and Britain was not. So the British negotiators uh, had got written into the negotiation a stipulation that if the British position turned out to be as bad as they thought it was going to be, um, then something would have to be done about it. And uh, that was the uh, that was the um, the clause, as it were, on which the subsequent uh, renegotiation of Britain's membership conducted by Harold Wilson and then the much fiercer battle. Uh, fought in the early 1980s by Margaret Thatcher. That was the basis on which that argument was reopened. The other bad thing about the deal, and I think it's a, I mean, it is a piece of skullduggery really on behalf of the original six members, uh, because here were three applicant countries, Denmark, uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland, which between them had most of the fish swimming in European waters. And those three countries said to the European community, look, you don't have a common fisheries policy at all at the moment, wouldn't it make sense since we're joining to devise one for nine? And basically the six said no. I mean, what they didn't say it openly, but what effectively they were saying was because you've got all the fish, we're going to make sure uh, that we skew the rules so that we get a disproportionate benefit. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, why did Harold Wilson win the referendum on Britain's membership in the EEC in 1975? One of the thing, one of the things that Harold Wilson said during the course of the campaign privately to one of his aides was, um, the reason I want to win this referendum, uh, is because, uh, if the Leave side wins, then the wrong people will be running the country. So, and I think quite a lot of public attitude came down to which of the politicians and others campaigning on both on either side, they trusted. And there was more trust uh, in those campaigning for Remain than for uh, for Leave. I think the economic performance of the European community was still very significantly ahead of that of, of uh, Britain. And also there was you know, still a degree of, of anxiety around uh, about uh, the Soviet Union. And I think that was a factor as well. Um, in people you know, look, looking for the for for for, safe, for safety in numbers, really. What was Margaret Thatcher's views of the EEC upon entering office in May 1979? I think that I think that throughout her time as Prime Minister, and not, and I think maybe it was different after she left office, but throughout her time 
as prime minister, she believed that membership of the European community was in Britain's national interest. She was a great believer in the European community as a vehicle for peace and stability in Europe. And most of her speeches on the subject are about just that. No, you know, no, no more war uh, in Europe. She disliked the kind of bureaucracy. She disliked um, you know, the powers of the European Commission. She had absolutely no time at all for uh, the European Parliament, which always insisted on calling it the European, uh, the European uh, Assembly. So it was something which she she recognised as being in Britain's national interest, but at the same time she disliked she disliked uh, quite a lot uh, about it. And of course, you know, all the other heads of government were men. Um, in some cases, particularly on the part of President Giscard d'Estaing of France. You know, he made no effort to, to, to treat her other than with a certain sort of, uh, of contempt. And, you know, she, ba- she basically, she basically believed, um, you know, that women, women could do a better job than men, than men. And here were all these men, and in particular, all these men who were standing in her way, uh, out of selfish self-interest in the sense that while they could recognize that Britain had a case for a reform of the budget, if Britain was going to pay less into the budget, they would have to pay more. So they weren't prepared to compromise, and that aggravated her. I think in addition to that, um, the the economic measures that she was introducing at home were very unpopular. So to have um, uh, a kind of foreign enemy you could stir up a bit of popular populist sentiment about was no bad was no bad thing as well. Uh, could it be said that? Uh in terms of the budget rebate battle, that the outcome was more of a compromise than a, a British victory as such? It was a compromise. I mean, the thing, the thing uh, in, especially, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of the numbers, I mean, she, in terms of the amount of Britain's contribution to the budget that Britain would get back, she had to settle for less than she'd started out. The, the, her big achievement was making it enduring, that it, because she was constantly being fobbed off with one-year deals, two-year deals, three-year deals. And she said, I will only accept something that lasts for as long as the problem lasts. And indeed, the, the, you know, the arrangements which she, which she secured lasted until Britain left the European, uh, the European Union. Um, and and that, that part of it, I think, was uh, uh, a victory on her part. And it was a, it was a victory for her, uh, for her you know, determination. And also, of course, I mean, the great thing about, I was, I was constantly saying to uh, Brexiteers during the referendum, you know, the thing about negotiation is you, you have to have leverage. And what is our leverage going to be once we've left? Margaret Thatcher's leverage was that the European community was running out of money. And it could only raise more money, in other words, raise the ceiling on the amount of money that was paid in by the member states by unanimity. So she was able to say, um, the pri- this is the price of my agreement. Uh, and it was at that point, really, that she could, she could get, the, get her deal. Uh, was Thatcher the, what we label the godmother of the single European Act? Yes, she was. Uh, she was certainly the, she was certainly the, the godmother of uh, the realization of the single market. I mean, the single market is there on the first page of the founding treaty of Rome, but very little really had been done for the first 30 years. There'd been some court cases which had established certain principles of, of free trade and, and non-protectionism. Um, but she was the first one really who, who, who said, look, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to open our markets to not just to goods, but to, to services. And we've got to, you know, got to remove, uh, the, the, the burdens of regulation on, on transport, particularly air transport. Uh, and, uh, and so, so yes, she was. And she, 
she made a rather unlikely alliance with Jacques Delors, the former French finance minister, um, whom she admired because uh, he had become finance minister under socialist president Mitterrand, and Mitterrand's economic policies were, in Margaret Thatcher's views, and probably objectively, um, not very successful, and Jacques Delors basically turned round the French economy. So she supported the idea of him being president of the commission, but Jacques Delors was at heart a socialist, so he had, he had other ideas going well beyond uh, what she wanted, uh, including, of course, the single currency, although for most of Britain's partners, you know, the single currency was the logical icing on the cake, as it were, of a single market. But certainly, although there were you know, bits of the single uh, European Act where she wasn't prepared to go as far as, as others, yes, I mean, very, very much her thing. And although in later life she became very hostile to the European Union, she never denounced the single European Act. She never went back on what she had done because I think she recognized that it had actually achieved what she set out to achieve, namely a, a genuine open market for goods and services and capital in, in Europe. Although the, even today, the single market in services hasn't yet been completed. What did European leaders such as Schmidt, Kohl and Mitterrand think of Thatcher? I think they were, I think they, they, were, they admired her uh, and were also exasperated by her. I mean, the, the thing about Margaret Thatcher is, she, you know, she, she didn't make sort of allowances for people. She wasn't, um, she wasn't a cozy a colleague. There was no sort of small, talk. there was no such thing as, as small talk with, uh, uh, with her. And I think, I mean, one of the things I put in the book was a very revealing conversation quite early on in her time in office between our, the British ambassador. Uh, in Bonn at the time, Oliver Wright, who subsequently became ambassador in Washington, I, and I worked for him there, uh, and, and, and Helmut Schmidt. And Helmut Schmidt basically said, look, when, when we thought when you joined, you would give new impetus to the European uh, Union. Um, you'd bring new ideas and, and, and fresh vigor, instead of which you're behaving like Italian shopkeepers. I mean, at the end of the day, he said, yes, your budget is too much, but at the end of the day, it's a tiny, tiny proportion of your GDP. It's not that important. And kind of what's happened to you? And I think that was that was that was their feeling. And already, even before Margaret Thatcher came into office, the Franco-German leadership of the European community was pretty well established, not least because they were founding uh, founding members. But under uh, the prime ministership of James Callaghan, Harold Wilson's Labour successor, uh, when the exchange rate mechanism was set up, which was the sort of forerunner of the single currency, uh, the first person Schmidt turned to was, was Jim Callaghan. Schmidt and Callaghan were friends. I mean, they were genuine personal friends. Uh, and he invited Callaghan to take part before he even approached Giscard d'Estaing. But Callaghan couldn't do it. I mean, the, for political reasons within the Labour Party and the state of the British economy. So basically, France and Germany led what in, le what in leadership as well as economic terms became a pretty decisive step. And I think that's one of the, you know, one of the sort of markers of the point at which Britain's path you know, does diverge from that of, uh, uh, from that of, uh, of the others. And of course, that particular mechanism, the exchange rate mechanism, Britain did eventually join towards the end of Margaret Thatcher's time. And then under John Major, uh, for various reasons, had to leave the exchange rate mechanism, which I think was, I mean, it was a disaster for John Major, for whom I was working at the time, but I think it was also something of a disaster for British perceptions of our place inside the European Union. What does 32 years on one make of Thatcher's Bruges speech, 
Was it as anti-European as it was said to have been at the time? Well, when I was when I was working for Tony Blair when he was prime minister, he asked for it to, for me to dig out a copy of the Bruce speech, which I did, and I gave it to him. I, I didn't say anything about it; just gave it to him. And after he'd read it, he said, "This is a pretty pro-European speech, isn't it?" And actually, if you reread that speech, it is it is in many ways a very remarkable speech. Uh, it's a speech which nowadays, you know, almost every head of government of the European Union would sign up to. And the two things about it. One is, uh, and this is, of course, before the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Iron Curtain, she says, let us not forget that Warsaw, Prague and Budapest are also great European cities. And that at the time was re- was regarded as being a rather an anti-European thing to say. People thought, ah, well, there go the Brits. They simply want to dilute the whole thing. But that wasn't what Margaret Thatcher was saying. Margaret Thatcher was basically saying, you know, that we have to be a union of democracies and there will come a time when we have to welcome those countries into into the European uh, community. So that was the first point. And the second point was a very simple one, really. He said we haven't you know, rolled back the frontiers of the, of the state in Britain to have them reimposed from from Brussels. And I mean, in fairness to her, I mean, Jacques Delors was going around um um, proposing a sort of a, 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 a vision of European uh, governance uh, in which basically the European Commission was the uh, administration um, answerable to the European Parliament with the European heads of government meeting in the European Council as a kind of Senate. Um, and that was the famous you know, the speech she made in the House of Commons, which was the last straw for her then senior minister, Geoffrey Howe, who resigned when she said, no, no, no. But uh, actually, you know, now now you wouldn't find any or very you would find any uh, head of government who didn't um, sign up to what she said. I mean, this is partly, of course, because the European Union itself has changed so much. I mean, at that point, I mean, the Dutch, the Dutch, for example, were the poster boys from from for a, a genuine European Union. I mean, now, if you look at the Netherlands, I mean, the level of kind of scepticism in the, in the Netherlands, I don't mean Euro scepticism in the British sense, but nonetheless, scepticism is very high. So there have been big, big changes. How, if at all, did John Major's views on Europe change between 1990 and 1997? Um, well, I think John, John Major, I mean, I remember having a discussion with John Major about uh, the European uh, community, the European Union. And uh, he's, you know, he said, you know, I voted, yes, I voted to stay in, in the 1975 referendum. And I've sometimes had doubts since then. But my view is, you know, we're in it and we have to make a, uh, a success of it. He was, of course, confronted with the fact that um, all of our partners, apart from uh, uh, the Danes at that stage, uh, wanted to go ahead with a single currency. Margaret Thatcher had threatened to veto the single currency. But the lawyers in London were saying uh, to John Major, look, they'll simply go ahead and make a separate treaty outside the European treaties on their own. And one of the big fears in London was that we could find ourselves in a kind of repetition of what had happened back in the 1950s. You know, we'd be outside. And if there came a point when we wanted to join the single currency, we'd have to pay a very high price. And at that stage, although John Major wasn't keen on the single currency for good economic reasons, in particular, lack of convergence between the European economies. He didn't rule out the possibility of uh, of joining. And although everybody refers correctly to the deal that we secured as being at, the Ma- at Maastricht, where the treaty was done, as Britain's opt out, actually, the negotiators 
were as much concerned about the terms on which we could opt in. In other words, to ensure there would be no barriers to our joining if we if we if we wanted to. Um, but uh, I think I mean, John, you know, John, John Major's um, view of Europe obviously was coloured by uh, our exit from the uh, exchange rate mechanism. I mean, not in the sense that he became uh, anti-European, but that combined then with opposition within the Conservative Party to the Maastricht uh, Treaty uh, created a real uh, problem for him. I mean, he, against all the odds, he won the general election. Uh, in 1992, but with an overall majority of about 20. Well, there were more than 20 Eurosceptics on his back benches who thought it more important to get out of Europe than to support their government. So uh, I remember him saying to me once, you know, I'm standing aside, uh, I'm standing astride a crack in the Conservative Party that's getting wider by the uh, by the minute. So he was fighting a kind of, uh, you know, he was on the on the back foot, as it were, uh, in kind of defensive terms. But his view, I mean, if you look at the speeches of British prime ministers, um, they're all the same, really, <laughs> every single one of them. They all say you know, there are there are uh, there are three choices. You know, we can be outside uh, looking in, uh, we can be uh, inside making a fuss, or we can be inside exercising leadership. And the best op- opportunity for Britain is to exercise leadership. But in practice, the domestic politics meant that we were inside, but very rarely there were exceptions. Uh, the single market was uh, was 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 one of them. Support for enlargement of the European Union was another. But on the whole, we were on the back foot rather than the front foot. What was uh, Tony Blair's attitude towards the European Union upon entering office in May 1997? And how did it differ from those of Gordon Brown, his Chancellor Exchequer? Well, I think at the time, at the time of that election, um, uh, I don't think there would have been uh, much difference um, uh, between them. I mean, Tony Blair was of a generation... Well. It was about to say a generation for, for which the European community was, was sort of a natural thing. But he'd first campaigned on the doorsteps, as it were, uh, in the 1983 general election, where the party of the Labour, policy of the Labour Party was to withdraw, still at that point, was to withdraw from Europe. But one of the things Tony Blair discovered on the doorstep was that that wasn't actually a very uh, popular view. And for that and other reasons, Labour lost that election disastrously to Margaret Thatcher. But Tony Blair personally was entirely at ease, as it were, within the European Union. Um, and I think uh, was, certain, was certainly in his second term, starting in 2001, interested in joining the single currency. But he was, I mean, he was, he was nonetheless, the tone was very different. I'm not sure the substance was that different. I mean, Tony Blair's one speech on foreign policy during that election campaign, when it comes to Europe, basically says, there isn't any difference in the policies of the Conservative government or of my party. The difference is that I'm a leader and John Major isn't. And I was sitting in Brussels then. I was then by then the, the British permanent representative, I ambassador to the EU. And when I read that um, Tony Blair had gone to Australia and had secured the support for the Labour Party of Rupert Murdoch, my heart sank because I thought this is going to put a damper on any thing the Labour Party chooses to do. You know, once you've secured the support of the Sun newspaper, you know, you're in hock to the Sun newspaper, as it were. Uh, and that, I think, was always a limiting factor. And then the other thing, I mean, I hadn't re- appreciated, and I, I, partly because I was in Brussels rather than in London, and I didn't really 
appreciate it until I came back to London to work for Blair in, in 2000 was the extent to which Gordon Brown in particular was motivated by his obsessive desire to replace uh, Tony Blair as prime minister. And I think Gordon Brown quite quickly saw that sort of banging the sort of British patriotic drum, as it were, in Europe uh, was pretty good for his standing, uh, in particular with the Murdoch with the Murdoch press. Um, so to that extent, and, and on the single currency more particularly, it became the sort of totemic vehicle around which this rivalry played itself out. Because Gordon Brown, who I think initially had been more in favour of the single currency than was Tony Blair, the roles rather became uh, reversed. But it wasn't until we were actually you know, up against the, the, the point of decision that it became apparent to me at least that Gordon Brown's opposition was so total that there was no way Tony Blair could go ahead with the single currency uh, while Gordon Brown was chancellor. And equally, of course, if he'd sacked Gordon Brown, the chances of winning a referendum on the single currency were, pr- were probably nil. In retrospect, wouldn't it be accurate to say that uh, Gordon Brown had the better of the argument as per joining the euro? Well, I think, I mean, I think you'd have, to, I, I, I think, you'd, I, I think at the time, yes. I mean, I, and I think one of the, one of the, I mean, the key, well, there are two key things. I think one, one is the whole, obviously, the whole issue of 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 convergence, and the convergence just wasn't there. The other thing I think was a certain amount of um, flex, flexing of the of the rules in terms of um, those who were uh, allowed to uh, uh, allowed to join. I mean, I think the, I think you would have to take a very Long view, probably, probably uh, beyond my lifetime, which is good because I can't be able to be proved wrong if I <laughs> when I when I say this. I mean, it seems to me that you know, if you look at the the, the history of the United of the United States and the kind of evolution of the United States, um, it takes it's all it's you know it's all it's a it's a long it's a long process, and I think that what you're gradually seeing, painfully, very painfully, is a move towards fiscal union. Now we're not there yet inside the eurozone. Um, but I think they will get there, and I think the, the politics will have to follow the economics. Now, I could be, you know, I could be, I could be drastically wrong about uh, uh, about that. But I mean, I think I think the example of what happened with Greece is quite a good example. That actually, although you know, the, 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 the Greeks were treat, treated uh, appallingly and went through went through years of hell. You know, they didn't leave the European um, single currency, and they have come out uh, the other side and, and we have seen in the last in the last months greater you know moves in particular i mean margaret thatcher had a very simple argument which was a single currency will only work if as in a nation state there are fiscal transfers between the rich and the poor and her objection was not that there should be such transfers but they would you could only have such transfers inside a political union and that was unacceptable to her um now those fiscal transfers are de facto now uh Happening, and I think that over time the politics will will follow. But um, anybody who's still listening to your podcast in thirty years' time can think to themselves, "Well, that guy, that guy didn't know what he was talking about." But uh, we shall see. <laughs> At least I won't, but some people will. As premier, how did Brown approach the European Union? I, I mean, I wasn't, I was no longer in in government, so I kind of rely on other people's uh, uh, accounts, really. Um, I think, I mean, he, you know, he, he believed in it, but I think he pursued really the kind of policies that he'd, uh, he had pursued, um, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. In other words, um, 
seeing it on the whole in rather in, in somewhat negative uh, terms. And, and, and insofar as he looked at it, it was a way of how can how can I be seen to have scored victories, as it were? How can I bring back you know, a, a success story? Um, I mean, you know, the number of, uh, of occasions where, you know, he'd go to a meeting where some issue was on the point of resolution, but he'd sort of turn it into a row so that he could then be seen to be winning the, uh, seen to be winning the row. Um, so I think that, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, Gordon Brown's prime ministership gen- generally was a disappointment. Here was, here was a man who, who had done a lot in politics, but by the time he became prime minister, didn't actually have anything very much new to offer, except, that uh in the in the crash of 2007 2008 he did then come into his own and you know he's a man of a big brain and he did uh he did make a big contribution to you know the formation of the uh of the g20 and and the steps that you know painfully uh brought us out of that crisis why did david cameron promise a referendum on britain's membership of the european union uh, to to unite the Conservative Party and to defeat the the threat from Nigel Farage and uh, the UK Independence Party and subsequently the, subsequently the Brexit uh, the Brexit Party. Um, I think it's, I think it's as simple as that. I mean, I think um, I think David Cameron uh, was a bit of a skeptic himself, but I think he'd come to the same view that other prime ministers before him had come to that Britain's interest lay in being part of the European uh, Union. Um, but uh, he in the part, party managed party management and holding his party together um, uh, trumped everything else in terms of his of his politics politics um, and uh, and policies and uh, he you know he, I think partly on the back of the Scottish referendum uh, he thought that he could um, uh, he thought that he could win uh the deal that he secured from uh his european from our european uh partners was not actually insignificant but it was pretty technical and it's been largely kind of discounted um, uh, um in the british press before it was uh delivered so it didn't it didn't achieve anything in terms of uh in terms of public opinion and then well as we know in the in the uh in the referendum campaign um uh, well, I think, you know, we, we was, we were, we were seeing something playing out in British politics that we perhaps hadn't spotted before, but which is, which is, you know, been a theme of politics around the world, including in the United States over the last, uh, over the last, uh, four years, which is, uh, populism. And I mean, because one of the things that surprised me as a campaigner for the, for Remain was the extent to which people were impervious to argument of fact. Uh, and I couldn't quite kind of get, get my head round, get my head round why. So, I mean, if you, if you look at the documents that were published, for example, by the Foreign Office during the campaign about the consequences of Brexit, they are 100% precise and, and are, and are playing out now exactly as they were written. But at the time, it was very easy for them to be dismissed as, as, as scaremongering. And I think I think uh, Im- you know immigration did play uh, a uh, a part, and I think Farage and his lot were very skillful at in people's mind making immigration from outside the European Union and immigration from within the European Union look like one of the same look like one of the same thing. I mean, if you look at their posters with with, with lines of people coming to enter the European Union, uh, most of the people in those posters don't have white faces. And that was a pretty scandalous but effective uh, tool. 
In retrospect, wouldn't be isn't it the case that uh, Cameron misjudged the um, amount of uh, support he can get from Angela Merkel in terms of uh, not only those negotiations in 2015-2016, uh, but even earlier in terms of uh, the decision to support uh, uh, Claude Juncker as um, uh, president? Of the EU. Yes, I think so. And I mean, on the on the uh, on the Juncker uh, appointment, I mean, I think he did get he did get quite far with uh, with her. But um, the Germans were very uh, wedded to this new system whereby you know the president of the of the European Council should come from uh, the party which won the most seats in the European Parliament, and having signed up for that system. When she appeared to be going against it by, uh, you know, opposing Jean-Claude Juncker, she got a very bad domestic political reaction, which I think sort of uh, frightened her. Of course, had David Cameron not taken the British Conservative Party out of the European People's Party, to which the German CDU belonged, he could probably, he and Merkel together, could probably have got a different candidate than Jean-Claude Juncker uh, at the head of the list. And by that means could have prevented Jean-Claude Juncker uh, from becoming president of the, of, the, of the commission. Why do you refer to the referendum as, quote, a tragic mistake, unquote. Because, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I believe. Well, first, first of all, I, uh, I believe that uh, economically it would be bad for the United uh, Kingdom. But more importantly, I think that uh, politically, to be part of uh, a group of democratic countries, which for all the problems, even now, share certain fundamental values. And I accept that what's going on in Poland and Hungary is of profound uh, uh, concern, but share those values and can together do more good in the world than a country like Britain can do on its own, both in terms of foreign policy, in terms of trade policy, certainly in terms of influence, in terms of overseas, in terms of overseas aid. I mean, the European Union is not perfect, but it does try to exercise soft power and does represent the, the, the power of, of, of democracy. And I think to absent yourself from that uh, runs against um, the kind of role in the world that Britain wants to uh, to play. Economically, I think it will be very bad uh, for us, not least because, uh, you know, our nearest neighbours will continue to be our largest uh, uh, trading partners and because the European Union along with the United States is one of the biggest setter of, of global of global standards including in, in new technologies and to no longer be part of the decision making process in decisions which Britain will be obliged effectively to implement is uh, is pretty stupid so you would say that all the rhetoric about global Britain is mere uh, hot air well, I think so far, so far it has been it has been hot air, and and you know we have to recognise that we are relatively speaking in the world uh, um, these days quite a small country. We have we do have certain assets, and we have to we have to make the most of those assets. I mean, our language, the English language, is still uh, uh, an asset. We have, you know, alongside the United States, probably only in second place to the United States, some of the world's greatest uh, universities. The power of the BBC, British Council, those cultural things are uh, uh, are important. Uh, despite uh, some of the activities of our present government, we are still uh, seen, I think, as as embodying 
you know the principles of democratic uh, government and, the, and and respect for uh, for human rights and those things do uh, count for something uh, in the world because of our uh, of our past we have a network through the commonwealth uh, across the globe that still counts for something all those countries that still want to be part of the uh, uh, of the commonwealth um, and i think uh, you know I, I mean i think we've always exaggerated the strength of our or importance of our own bilateral relationship with the with the united states but i think we we have to play our part in what is now well two very important tasks one is obviously uh, the whole question of climate change um, uh, and the other is you know how do how do we deal with the menaces posed by Russia and more particularly uh, China and I mean those those one reason why I, th I think despite what is said that the Johnson government in Britain uh, has more in common with the Biden administration than it could ever have with the Trump administration is because on all those issues uh, the Johnson government has much more in common with the incoming administration than it ever had with the Trump administration. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Um, I, well, I would hope people. I would. Well, I, I hope they would take away they, that it was a that it was a good read and it was uh, and it was and it was interesting. Um, I hope they would take away. May you know maybe that there are some there are some lessons to be uh, to be learned because I mean I'm not one of those people who think that uh, in any short term anyway uh, that we will we, that we will rejoin. But I think we are we we may well find ourselves confronted already do find ourselves confronted with a modern version of some of the factors which you know led led us through this rather sort of painful period after the war before we kind of came to terms uh with the country that we really are i think i think coming to terms with coming to terms with reality is still uh is still something of a problem in the UK. We are still a bit mesmerized by our uh, imperial past and by what a young German friend of mine called the British sense of moral superiority. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Sir Stephen, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Sir Stephen Wall. Thank you. I enjoyed it.